You're listening to Nutrition Matters Podcast with Paige Smathers, Registered Dietitian Nutritionist. Hi everyone, it's Paige Smathers. Thanks so much for being here. Nutrition Matters Podcast explores what really matters in nutrition and health with a sensitive and realistic approach. To help support the podcast, please consider making a donation at positive-nutrition.com slash podcast. If you find this episode interesting, engaging, or helpful in your life, please consider donating, sharing with friends and family, and leaving a review on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever podcast app you use to listen to this podcast. You can leave a review about this podcast straight from your podcast app. Search Nutrition Matters Podcast, click Reviews, and then write a review. You can also find me on Instagram and Facebook if you'd like to have a little more food for thought. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Nutrition Matters Podcast. My name is Paige, and I'm your host. And as always, I'm I'm thrilled to have you here and also thrilled to share this conversation that I had with such a fantastic dietitian named Fiona Sutherland. So Fiona and I, in this podcast episode, we talk about sports nutrition and its intersection with weight-neutral care. And... I couldn't think of a better person to talk with this about. Fiona is an expert in sports nutrition as well as a really well-respected force to be reckoned with in the health at every size uh, space. She, You can keep in touch with her at The Mindful Dietitian um, on Instagram and Facebook. She also has a group, if you're a dietitian, a group called The Mindful Dietitian on Facebook that's really great, and there's lots of good discussion that happens there. So just by way of introduction a bit, Fiona is the director of the, Mind, of the Mindful Dietitian and Body Positive Australia and has been practicing for 15 years primarily in the areas of eating disorder, eating behavior, eating disorders, and body image, sports nutrition, and education and training. She's been integrating the non-diet approach into dietetic practice for over 12 years and is passionate about supporting the health, health professionals to develop skills in understanding more about the complexities of client presentations and how we can focus on well-being. As an eating disorder specialist, Fiona has a particular interest in binge eating and finding evidence-based, compassionate ways for working with people in diverse bodies. Fiona is also a sports dietitian, working with emerging professional dancers at the Australian Ballet School and host of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. So we talk about this more in the podcast episode, but I wanted to be sure that All of you uh, have a good background in Fiona so that you can kind of uh, follow along and understand where she's coming from in so much of the amazing wisdom she shares in this podcast episode. So I I also wanted to mention a couple things just by way of reminder. This podcast episode is the second to last episode I'll be releasing in 2018. I will be releasing another episode next week that I'm, I'm really excited about. So plug for that one and keep your eyes out for that one. Um, so during the month of November and December, I will be taking a two-month break from podcasting. It's been a lot of years of putting out a weekly episode, and so I'm just excited to kind of take some time to have one less thing on my to-do list. And I'm really grateful for all of your patience and kindness towards me as I take that break. Uh, Let's see, what else? Uh, Also, we have the Nutrition Matters Podcast Facebook community, which, believe it or not, is is growing and is supportive and is just a wonderful space. So if you'd like to connect with some people who are 
similar to you in terms of your journey and um, in the things that you're grappling with, join us over there. Right now we have, let's see, 689 members. So that's it's a fun space to kind of go and be supported and ask questions and build community. So Nutrition Matters Podcast Community on Facebook. So this podcast, you guys will notice that I don't take sponsorships from advertisers, but in lieu of that, I do like to tell you about some things that I'm up to to see if anything might be interesting to you or helpful for you. So the latest thing that I've put out there into the world that I'm super proud of and um, really excited to share is my brand new course called Positive Nutrition 101. This is a 12-lesson course all about nutrition science without the gimmicks. So... I co-teach this course with my dear friend, Jesse Hoffman, who is really at this point a couple weeks away from receiving her PhD in nutritional sciences, and then she'll go on to become a registered dietitian after that. So Jesse and I talk about some of the most important things in the world of nutrition science to understand to help you build a healthy relationship with food. So for those of you who are familiar with the intuitive eating paradigm, this is sort of that last principle of intuitive eating, the gentle nutrition principle where, where you know, nutrition can definitely play a role in how we eat and how we choose to eat. Um, but it is really important to do that background work of healing your relationship with food, making peace with it, connecting to your body, and also rejecting diet culture. For a lot of folks, it's really important to do that work before diving into the nutrition stuff. So if you feel ready for the nutrition stuff, if you're looking for a place and a resource to learn about nutrition without all the gimmicks of like, oh, and then this is how you manipulate your body. Uh, you've, you found the right place. So Positive Nutrition 101 is what it's called. And the way you can access that is through my website, positive-nutrition.com. And then there's a little tab at the very top left uh, that says Academy. You can click on that tab and you'll find the course. So again, we're really proud of that. We're really... Um, Excited for those who have joined, and we've gotten really great feedback so far. So check it out. See if it might be a good fit for you. Um, and again, this is sort of me advertising what I put out there because I know all of you are likely pretty interested in these types of things. So I do this instead of um, you know advertising for mattresses or glasses or some meal prep service or something like that. Um, I just figure it's a good way to kind of you know, see if what I do is interesting to the audience that I've built. And if not, that's great too. I'm always just so glad to have you here. All right. I think that's about it. And as always, thanks for your time and for, you know, connecting with me each week. It really is super humbling and grounding and just amazing to me that I'm able to connect with so many of you in this way. It's really incredible to me and I'm grateful for the opportunity that I have. So hope you have a wonderful um, day and a great time listening to this podcast episode. And here is Fiona. Well, welcome Fee to Nutrition Matters Podcast. So glad you're here. Paige, what a pleasure it is to be chatting with you today. Thank you so much for inviting me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for joining me. I know this is um, this is a lot of time that I'm asking you to give me today, and I'm just stoked to talk to you about all these things that you're so good at and that I admire about you, and I think will be really interesting for my listeners. So thanks for joining me. Oh, you're super, super, super welcome. And you know, as we've spoken about before, you know, giving time to things that we really believe in and are passionate about is is really important to me. So it's just an absolute pleasure. 
Great. So Fee, talk a little bit about you and what you do professionally, sort of introduce yourself broadly, and then we'll kind of focus the conversation in on a few interesting topics. Sure. Sounds good. All right. Where shall I start? Um, So I've been a non-diet dietitian uh, for about 20 years now, and more specifically, uh, really diving down into eating disorders and body image and more mindfulness-based practice for about 15 years or so. Um, I guess I, I started off early in my career um, dabbling in clinical practice and discovered pretty early on that that was not a good match for me. If I'm going to be blunt, I just hated it. It was just not, it wasn't my jam at all. Um, I found the kind of lack of, um, the lack of contact with uh, my patients and clients. Um, I didn't enjoy that lack of contact at all. I found, um, you know, dietetic departments were not a good match for me, I guess you would say. Um, And I've learned to really understand what is a good match for me rather than kind of holding myself fully accountable for always needing to shape shift or morph into how I think others expect me to be, if that makes sense. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Yeah, I think I think especially for dietitians and and health professionals, and actually probably this is a human thing as well that we can spend some time, especially during our teenage years or early adult years, um, shape shifting into what we think we should be. And to be honest with you, Paige, I spent way, way, way too many years doing that as I guess an older child and through my teenage years and. In retrospect, I just wish I could go back and and speak to myself and say, you know, you're you're cool just the way you are. You don't need to change to be anybody else, and just 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 embrace the things that you love to do and the things that you're really passionate about. And then actually, things will work out. I just wish I could have gone back and said that. So mm, I relate to that um, so much. I'm sure, I'm sure, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners do too, you know, and, and at the same time, it's probably part of growing up is, you know, our, our sense of wanting to fit in and and not and not wanting to um, be rejected or, you know, pushed out of a crowd, whatever that crowd may be. So, um, and then after some clinical work, I actually um, moved to Canada for a couple of years and worked in an outdoor education space with underserved youth. And uh, that was an amazing experience. Um, you know, I lived in a teepee and lived in this little small community just outside Calgary and had a wonderful experience where my, I guess my, my vision of the world really broadened and deepened, especially when it, when it came to um, understanding the very real lived experiences of other people who didn't have the same privileges as I did. And so my, my interest, I guess, before that in social justice really kind of flourished. Um, And as I, you know, came into direct contact with people who, um, you know, had different life experiences to to myself, um, especially young, young people. Um, 
And I just learned, I guess I learned a lot about what it takes to be in a position of leadership and what that actually means. And that you don't always have to be front and centre to, you know, engage in, engage in leadership. But it was a really amazing opportunity for me to come in contact with my own kind of authenticity and, um, and to just settle into a space where I could just get to know myself a lot more intimately, I suppose. Um, and then I came back to Australia and I actually had no intentions of going back to dietetics. And with that in mind, you know, I'm always fascinated to think about if we were to do a bit of a quiz five years on or a questionnaire, maybe is a better way to say it, five years on and just to see how how many dietetic graduates actually are still practicing in dietetics and where and that path, how that path has been, because um, I'm sure I'm not alone in, um, you know, I almost dropped out during my course. I almost dropped out afterwards. I, I was very, very disillusioned as a new grad. Um, there was a lot of the course that I felt was not what I thought it was going to be in whatever way, shape and form. Um, and I, I did feel very pressured into being a quote unquote certain type of dietitian, mm, yeah. um, you know, presenting myself physically in certain ways, emotionally in certain ways. And I felt very underskilled, to be honest. Um, and so, yeah, fast forward to come back to Australia and um, I I needed a job. I needed a job. And I thought, okay, I can either go and work, say, as a barista, which is a fine career. I have no issue. I love my barista. <laughs> um, and, and, you know, that's a that's a fantastic career choice. And for me at the time, it was not going to pay the bills, um, certainly with a, a, a debt, a university debt. So um, I actually, kind of long story short, ended up in a really interesting uh, workplace, which actually proved to be the most formative um workspace that I could have possibly ended up in, and that was a weight loss clinic. Now, Paige, you and I know each other well enough that you're probably thinking, what? <laughs> what were you doing there? And what's important for me to let you and your listeners know is, of course, I had no idea that um, a non-diet approach or intuitive eating or health at every size, that simply, in my world, didn't exist. I, I didn't know that this even was a thing in the world. And so this was probably about, um, yeah, 16, 15, 16 years ago now. And so what happened there was I thought my role as a dietitian, I was really trained to help people lose weight. And apparently that was um, all about, quote unquote, getting healthy and, um, you know, addressing disease risk and et cetera, et cetera. And all these kind of um all these beliefs that we have are associated with making our bodies smaller. Um, and the upside is that I had the incredible privilege of hearing people's stories about the way they felt about their bodies, their relationships with food. And after a number of months, I guess, things were not adding up for me. And I began to feel even more disillusioned. And the um, error that I made in hindsight was I blamed myself. I thought that I was doing this whole thing wrong, that I, if only I was a 
quote unquote better dietitian, that these people not only should and could be losing weight, but they also should be be able to keep it off too, because apparently I had the skills and the magic wand to be able to make that happen. So when I, but what was really formative for me was actually people's lived experiences. I was just hearing so much pain and what I now can name as trauma um, and just the depth of distress that people had experienced. And I was hearing some real similarities, story after story, person after person, human after human. And that's when I, when I, and when I was able to stop blaming myself for long enough, I was actually able to broaden out my lens to realize that actually there was something very wrong with the structures that were in place and the messages and what we now can name as diet culture was really was really um, serving to um, systematically oppress people, particularly in larger bodies, but actually in, in a variety of different bodies as well. Um, so I began to, uh, I guess, investigate, I suppose. that That's typically my uh, method is something's not right, so I'll start to investigate. And this was really in the very early days of um, what we would call Dr. Google now. And so that's not where I went. I went to the bookshop to have a look. And somehow I stumbled across a book called If Not Dieting, Then What?, which is by uh, Dr. Rick Corsman, who is a Melbourne-based uh, doctor, um, and as somebody who has become a good friend of mine, who wrote a, the very one of the very early books on what we now call the non-diet approach. And he spoke about mindful eating. He spoke about appetite cues. He spoke about um, dieting and diet cycling and all these words that were very, very new to me. And all of a sudden, my world opened because in his writing, I was seeing my clients' stories and I was putting things together like a big giant Christmas tree and feeling at the same time as feeling hopeful, I felt very angry. I felt very cheated that I had never been exposed to this particular way of helping people pursue well-being or quote-unquote health, whatever that you know, means to someone in a way that did not involve changing the body. And so I was simultaneously, and, and you know what, Paige, in some ways I'm still struggling with these, um, with as these mixture of feelings comes up. It's like I can feel hope and I can feel grief and I can feel joy and I can feel rage and I can feel compassion and I can feel anger. And oh my Lord, it's just, being an adult is just really hard. It's a lot. <laughs> I know it's a lot every day. I find it's a struggle. Um, <laughs> so, um, so kind of that's where my learning really began. Okay, and can I can I cut in real quick and and just yeah, highlight something you said? I love I love when you're describing your story and describing your process of kind of feeling disillusioned and then finding this book that uh, put a name, put language to to the things that you had observed through sitting with people and listening to people um, and their stories. I, I just want to highlight, I think that that's such an important thing. I think that having language to be able to identify something that is just kind of internal and it's this feeling and it's this like intuition, sense of intuition maybe. I find that when my, when my clients and even myself, like when I, 
when I find these words or this these concepts that I can say, oh, now I know what that is and I can identify what that is, I think that there's such power to that. Um, obviously, mm-hmm. like there's some meaning that kind of gets lost when you translate a feeling into into a word, but I think that there's a lot of power there where you can you can now identify and say, okay, that's diet culture or um, that right there, that is trauma, right? So mm-hmm. anyway, that that's something that stood out to me so far in, in your story is just the power of of kind of seeing those concepts on paper and being able to say, ooh, they have that experience too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think for me, it um, what it did was allow me then to connect with community and um, and really helped me realize that not only was I not the first person to actually think this the stuff up, <laughs> um, but also that there were other people doing this work all over the world. Um, and back then, the community wasn't what it is now, but that I certainly was not alone um, and that that, was, that provided me then with the platform to be able to launch forward into working with people um, in a way that felt very, um, f- very well suited to me and felt very um, compassion based and, um, and, and authentic to me as well. Um, so, so that's when I kind of, I started to, um, I had an opportunity to work in an outpatient eating disorders clinic. And, um, and at that time I had never, I had never seen anybody with a, with a, a diagnostic eating disorder. I'd seen plenty of chronic dieters, but never somebody with an eating disorder. And look, in hindsight, I actually really, I had no idea what I was doing, but I had this, what's it called? Unconscious. What, what do you, how do you say when you don't know what you're doing, but you don't know that you don't know what you're doing? What's that called? I have um, no idea. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was really lucky because now <laughs> I feel like I really am aware of when I don't know what I'm doing and it makes me really nervous. <laughs> yeah. So, so I, yeah. there's a, are you talking about the Dunning-Kruger effect where like you mm-hmm. don't know how much you don't know and then when you learn yes. more, you realize, whoa, everybody who has yes. opinions about this stuff and speaks so definitively about these topics, they don't know anything because there's so many more questions than answers. Yes, yes, it is part of the Dunning Kruger effect. Definitely, I'm a big fan of that effect. I think there's a lot we can learn from. Oh yeah, it's so interesting. (laughs) So interesting. Um, So then, I guess I spent, you know, many more years again hearing stories. So I feel like I'm the privileged recipient of, you know, people's people's stories and experiences. And I am, in some ways, without without kind of, um, you know without minimizing the work that I actually do put into my own ongoing training and, and, um, and education, I think, you know, that's really what, how I would drill down on, on what I am is I'm a, I'm a listener (laughs) in so many ways. I'm a person who is being with your experience, um, you know, and, and helping, you know, and I'm muddling along, um, as we all are in life and just trying to figure this stuff out. So do you think think that that's, kind of like a, a gift that you kind of have just as a human, just do you feel like that's sort of innate in you or is that something that you practiced and learned or what do you think about yeah, that? Yeah, it's actually a really good question. I think I have pr- had to practice it. Um, I don't think that this comes naturally to me. I think my natural reflex is fixing actually um, uh, because 
like most humans, I don't like to see other people in pain. And if I feel like I have something, um, you know, important to, to share, then my, definitely my, you know, from motiv- motivational interviewing, it's called the writing reflex. And I have a very, very strong writing reflex, actually. Yeah, okay. And um, yeah, in supervision, I need to really keep an eye on that. But, um, but it is something that, you know, with continued work and support, I have been able to hold. Um, and in the meantime, being able to to, to really prioritise the experience of the person in front of me and, and be with them as they are, you know, finding ways to take to take really great care of themselves kind of with my, with my support. Um, so, yeah, no. I turn to your question, no, it does not come naturally. I've had to work at it. Okay. Um, so I know you do a lot of work with sports nutrition. I'd love to hear mm-hmm. kind of how you got into that world. Yeah, so I think um, I was an athlete myself. I, I was a, a competitive gymnast for about 10 years or so, probably seriously for about five. Um, and, you know, I always – what I wanted to do actually was be a physiotherapist or in the States you call it physical therapy – um, and the reason is because I spent half my freaking life at the physio. <laughs> and oh. so I guess maybe subconsciously I was thinking this is a way I could recoup all the funds that my parents had had really sunk into my own um, rehabilitation. Oh my goodness, the um, the number of hours I spent there. Um, so that's actually what I wanted to do, but probably similar to other countries, it's very difficult to get into here. Um, and so actually straight out of school, I missed I missed out on getting into physiotherapy. Um, so I did my science degree and then I went into dietetics. And you know what? The universe always has plans. I really believe that. And um, I wouldn't be where I am now if I, if I, if I hadn't kind of chosen that path. And the Truth be told, I wasn't passionate about being a dietitian. I just thought it would be a great second choice. Okay, so, um, interesting. And here yeah. you are, rocking the dietetics world. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I'm not a typical foodie. Like I love food um, as long as other people cook it for me, but I don't – like the worst question you can ask me is what's for dinner because – I will throw something and I'm not a violent person. I will throw something <laughs> and, and do a massive eye roll and, and you know, and then kind of get on with it. But. I relate to you. And it's so like with the work we do, I mean, we talk about obviously things around nutrition, but we also spend time talking about food quite a bit and hearing people talk mm. about their food. And for me, I feel the same way. It's like, don't make me think about food when I'm not at work. <laughs> it's a struggle outside mm-hmm. of outside of work. Yeah, definitely. I mean, um, yeah, it's interesting because I have particular food preferences, I suppose. Like I'm not a massive lover of seafood or, you know, super, super spicy food. And I like the food. I, I like I like the food I like and I'm happy with that. It's like I don't know, friendships. I like the friends I like and I'm happy with that, you know. Um, So, yeah, so with my background as an athlete myself, I had always then been really interested in in sport and sports nutrition. And so I – Really, I was so, so, so lucky that about the same time as I started working in the eating disorders outpatient um, program – I, a, a good friend of mine was moving overseas with her young family and needed somebody to step in just for a year at a couple of quite, in a couple of quite big jobs. So one was um, 
uh, what's called the Victorian Institute of Sport, um, which is an elite sporting academy. They they take uh, they they have scholarships and programs for. I don't know how many sports, like maybe 30 or so, like a lot of different sports. And they they kind of host and um, have programs for hundreds of athletes, hundreds of elite level athletes. So I worked with the gymnastics program there for, um, and the women's hockey program there for a number of years, which I absolutely loved. Um, and then also at that same time, this same friend of mine was working for the Australian Ballet. And so um, I've been with them since. So that's been, I think, maybe 13 years, at least 13 years. What is it, 2018? Oh, my gosh, longer. Maybe, oh, do you know what? Maybe I've been there for 15 years now. So um, I really love working at the ballet. And so what I do is I, I work mostly with the school, so with students from about age uh, 11 to around uh, 19, and then I act as a consultant to the um, the, the professional um, company company dancers. Um, so what so do you I do lo- with them? I'd love to hear more because there's, mm-hmm. there's a local ballet company here in Salt Lake City called Ballet West, and I have had clients through the years who also are a part of that company, and it's an, it's an interesting world, um, the, the world of ballet in particular. Oh, it sure is. Yeah. It's a really interesting world because um, there are so many competing pressures um, and certainly not just in ballet, but in sport, sport, sport and sports performance in general, I find. But, you know, just starting off with ballet and and those kind of more performance arts, I mean, it, it's really interesting because um, – some dancers don't like being called an athlete. They and and what they do is not a sport. Some of them would say, "I'm a dancer. I dance. That's that's what I do." Um, and I really respect that. I guess it's like being a cyclist. You might not say, "I'm an athlete." You might say, "I'm a cyclist. That's what I do." Um, and I and I appreciate that as well. So, um, but in terms of from a sports nutrition perspective, I definitely regard them through the lens of an athlete right. because of what their body is really trying to do every day and the you know the the kind of the some of the complexities and dilemmas with working with young dancers is a they're really good like they are really incredible performers so they're at the elite level in Australia and we have overseas students as well they're at the top of the game um they are sometimes uh away from home from quite quite young, we have a boarding house and they sometimes are living away from the age of maybe 13, 14. That's really young. And dancing full-time and doing schooling and going through puberty. So with all that in mind, (laughs) I know it's so much, my goodness. You could not pay me a million dollars to go back and be a teenager again. There's no way. Not me neither. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I Paid know, my dues. <laughs> I know, I know. So I, I feel, you know, deeply compassionate for everything that they do have to hold during those years. But so what I really aim to do in our nutrition program is is um, is offer opportunities for them to really explore food and eating and, and their body and body image and interoceptive awareness and all kinds of things in a way that really cultivates curiosity and keeps them connected to their body. Because what I notice is that... And and we know this through kind of cognitive development during childhood and then 
you overlay nutrition messages on top of that is the more that children and teens and actually adults all through the lifespan, the more we start to rely on external messages, the more we become disconnected from our internal sense of what feels good for us and what kind of serves us best. And so for athletes, I think there are a lot of dilemmas there um, in trying to match kind of the science of uh, fueling, as we kind of call it in sports nutrition, and with um, maybe body pressures as well. So dance is just one example, but honestly, I would extrapolate that out to all athletes I work with work with. So whether they're a volleyballer or a triathlete or a runner or a swimmer, tennis player, um, whether you're um, whichever gender you identify as, it's, you know, these complexities are not limited just to the kind of um, sports or or performance arts that we really colloquially um, see as being most at risk of having um, you know, disordered eating or, or body image disturbance or um, or any, anything that, you know, any kind of difficulties that might arise for us. I, I see people struggling all across different sports, all across different um, ages, genders, um, levels of competition, amateurs right through to uh, professionals. So um, what I really aim to do in my work, particularly with health professionals, is to help people um, understand that if we if we think that certain athletes are somehow immune or they're less at risk, then we're making a big mistake. And we really need to hold the idea that unless proven otherwise, somehow, that we need to see all athletes at being at risk of becoming quite disconnected from their bodies and that actually dietitians are in an incredible position. We are at the forefront of being able to support the athletes that that um, are in our care, I guess you would say, um, to really stay connected um, to their body through really considerate nutrition education and really, really um, um, compassionate care and thoughtful, thoughtful ways of working with them, which helps them to... Um, to be able to not only perform at their best because that's a shared desire that we all have, but then also, um, you know, physically, emotionally, um, to be able to support the folks who we're working with to um, to live in this world feeling connected and feeling like, you know, they are more than an athlete. They are a human being living in this world and, you know, that, that identity can become a bit of a trap as well. Yes, um, that's a big yeah. one. That's a big mm-hmm. one with athletes mm-hmm. is is that it's such a big part of who they are that it's hard to even imagine any any type of identity outside of that, which can have really big food and body image implications. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I actually think, look, through experience – um, I would actually say that the most risky times for engaging in disordered disordered eating or disordered exercise or some kind of um, uh, disordered behaviours are either the onset of an injury, the onset of an illness, or and or the onset of retirement, um, because the the when an athlete steps away from a very familiar environment and one in which they often have been held up as having um, as as needing to present to the world in a certain way, and that includes physically, um, you know, because 
thanks diet culture. And side um, note, kind of like what you said. Culture in lots of ways. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say side note, just like what you were saying you dealt with as a dietitian, similar to what athletes might feel they need to present to the world as well. Oh, definitely. Yes, definitely. I think we, we, we must never under, underestimate those pressures ever. You know, it's like, um, I mean, the dietitians who are listening to us now will completely relate to, you know, in social situations, the comments that people make, oh, you know, oh, aren't you meant to be a dietitian or, oh, oh, better not eat this, the dietitian's here or blah, 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 blah. And this starts when you're a student. And, you know, even even yesterday when I was talking to this this group of, of, of dietetic students, they were really upset by it. And they said, you know, what's your advice? And I said, you know, you can't always stop people from saying what they're going to say, but never forget that you can show up in this world as a dietitian dietitian in whatever way you please. Don't ever let somebody else's um, idea of how you should be in this world influence you to shape shift from who you are because you are not going to be able to offer your best to this world and to the people who you're, who you are in service to and with if you're going to shape shift every time somebody demands something of you. You're going to lose it. yourself. That's huge. Oh, that's such a big, that is such a big deal. And that's so true for dietitians. That's true for athletes as well. Like you've got to show up to your sport and to your, with your team or with whatever, um, organization, you know, your sport has in it, in itself, but you have to show up there as yourself because you can't, mm-hmm. you can't perform whether that's with sport or, or, you know, with your job, um, if if you're doing anything else but but being you yeah that's that's absolutely true and at the same time being able to facilitate those discussions around the very real pressures that both dietitians and athletes experience around you know some of the consequences of being yourself and that you're not going to be able to please everybody. And what does that mean? You know, what does that mean when people feel disappointed or they feel let down or they feel, um, or, or, or they don't like you? Heaven forbid, right? Yeah. That somebody doesn't like you, you know, <laughs> yeah. or, or like, or like your body, you know, or think you're awesome. Um, but don't you think as a dietitian, and I, I wonder about your athletes as well, but I know for me, I kind of feel like I'm damned if I do, damned if I don't, body-wise, right? So it's like I show up in a space and I'm me and I'm trying my best to, you know, not worry about what people might think or, you know, just kind of show up and and do my thing and be, you know, be helpful as I can. But I know that, I mean, people have given me feedback like – um wow, you're well-nourished, and I, I don't really know exactly what that means, but I've gotten that, and I've, I mean, I've gotten comments on, on all different ends of the spectrum kind of implying I'm too thin, so how would I understand, or I'm too thick, so I'm obviously not a good dietitian. It's just, mm. it's such a tricky thing that, that for me, I've just kind of realized, like, I it doesn't really matter what my body looks like. It's going to be... Um, not right for, for lots of, you know, again, you can't please, can't please everybody. Um, and that's very true with your body as well. Yeah, that's, that's so true. I think one of the things with athletes that's very real is that, especially at the elite level, is that, um, there is definitely this mentality that, um, 
you know, that they can and should be doing absolutely everything that they can in order to, for example, make a team or to get on that dais um, or to um, or to progress to that next level. Um, and, and that is very, very real. So I am deeply compassionate to the, to the pressures that athletes feel to actually engage in behaviours that are actually very disordered in order to, quote unquote, succeed at their sport. And I think it takes a certain amount of maturity from an athlete to be able to to be able to maintain that sense of autonomy um, and to gather people around them who can support them to um, stay connected with what matters most and to not sacrifice themselves um, in the process. Uh, you know, I, I think, you know, I consider myself very lucky that I have worked with um, with athletes and with sports where we've been able to really make some great uh, changes from within the sport through advocacy and um, uh, and, and changing processes and setting up, uh, for example, eating disorder prevention programs that we don't necessarily ca- actually call it that, but that's what it is. Yeah. You know, we have we have open conversations around body image, around you know what would it feel like if you were starting to. Um, if you were starting to experience um, doubts about your body or starting to to engage in some body comparisons, you know, what would you be noticing about your thinking, about your feeling, about where your eyes are kind of going to and maybe what you're following on social media and and things like that. So, teenagers are tricky to work with because I think they're tricky to work with anyway. Um, <laughs> yes. And, you know, as, as you and I said, you know, I'm I mean, with our with our kids, our group of kids, we're a way off that, and I just I'm glad I'm personally a way off that. But um, but you know, with the young adult athletes that I work with, and there's a fair few of those as well, as well as um, you know, some more more adult style adults, um, that the pressure to do whatever it takes means that sometimes athletes are willing to put themselves in situations where they are hurting themselves and can get themselves into a real pickle, to be honest. Yeah. Well, so I heard a quote recently that this, what you've just been saying has made me thought of. It's, it's something along the lines of um, the, the first step to justifying violence against someone is to dehumanize them or to turn mm. them into an object. And mm. it, the, the quote was talking about how we treat each other, but I think that's also so relevant in how we treat ourselves. When And an athlete, I think, is very uh, much more at risk, perhaps, than the average person in in engaging in that type of thinking where you turn yourself from this human who's flawed and who's all over the place and all you know just messy and imperfect to no I'm a machine I I ignore I I feel pain and I do it anyway and they're mm. they're just particularly at risk for that type of mentality where then it justifies the violence um and and violence toward yourself can look like a lot of different ways but but in context of what we're saying here, what I mean is, you know, depriving yourself of, of, of food or over-exercising or engaging in these disordered behaviors. 
Yeah, I completely, completely agree with you. And if you think about it, um, a lot of the way that athletes are treated is very mechanical in lots of ways. Oh, yes. Even, um, you know, even... um, you know, and I know that, you know, um, folks who are doing welfare and psychologists and stuff would, I mean, I, I think they do an amazing job. I think they they absolutely do their best in a fairly, in what can be a fairly difficult culture. So um, I remember, okay, I'll just tell a quick story because this is relevant. Years ago, when I first started um, looking at what at the time was known as the female athlete triad. So for those listeners who are not aware of this, this is kind of the interrelationship between three dimensions of um, of health. So one being um, uh, one being uh, eating behaviour or, or or the amount of energy that we take into our body and whether that is enough or not, um, and the other. One is bone health, and the other dimension is hormone health, and how and the interrelation interrelated dimensions of these three kind of um, constructs and how they show up, particularly in female athlete bodies. Now, uh, as kind of research has gone on, we have now um, extended this understanding to um, to frame this as what's called relative energy deficiency in sport, or red S, or some people call it reds. Um, and just to kind of reiterate, this is the kind of interrelationship between when we undereat, that it has an impact on our hormone levels and 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 periods, essentially in females or, or hormone balance in males, um, and then bone health and can lead to you know bone thinning over time. Now um, I tell I tell that in context because um, you know. 10, 12 years ago, I was giving a talk to a a group of elite level coaches at a very prestigious training organization. And there was about 10 of them there. And they were really interested. This was at a time when we weren't really talking about it. And they were seeing all this stuff, but weren't too sure what to do. And um, anyway, so I gave this, this talk. And at one point I said, you know, what's really important to keep in mind is that nothing is more important than an athlete's, athlete's health and wellbeing. And one coach um, actually put up his hand and said, I beg to differ. A gold medal is more important than an athlete's health and well-being. And I have never forgotten that because I was silenced. I was floored. I just I was I was actually speechless. And I mean, as would be evidenced by our conversation now, Paige, I can talk. Like I can talk. <laughs> You've <laughs> you know. recovered that ability. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I can talk. <laughs> so I was floored. And do you know what? That really demonstrated to me one of the things that really gets in the way. That attitude is exactly what gets in the way of athletes feeling like they have permission to listen to their bodies and to pay attention to their bodies and 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 to know the difference between discomfort and pain and to know the difference between um you know um uh, to fueling my body for performance and fueling my body to control my weight or to control my body right. shape or body composition so um that kind of I went and I then did some work I guess some internal work some self reflection um, and then also, you know, took a much, much deeper dive into, okay, this attitude is a problem. I, I, I actually think this is a problem. How can I, um, how can I develop my messages really, really deliberately and really thoughtfully to both athletes, support staff, coaches, uh, families, 
um, in a way that that provides people with strong foundations about how athletes can both perform well and also not get themselves, not find themselves going down the rabbit hole of of diet culture and and kind of disordered. Um, the, the disordered kind of suite of behaviors, I guess you would say. So that's kind of where my work has been really. So that is such a tricky balance because I think when athletes hear, when an, if, if, if an athlete is lif- listening right now, I can imagine them thinking like, okay, so I pretty much have to choose between uh, performing at my best or even in certain sports, maybe, you know, having a certain physique that that that's part of the sport is your appearance. Mm -hmm. So I either have to choose, um, you know, what, what you're saying here of like honoring my body and paying attention to it and connecting to it, or I choose to be really good at my sport. It sounds like that's Mm -hmm. something you're probably consistently having to sort of discuss and explore and talk about with people. Yeah, definitely. I I guess that's at the root of, of, um, of most of the conversations that I do have with athletes is navigating this quite complex space. And sometimes, um, well, not sometimes, often it really depends on the individual athlete, the sport that they're competing in, um, and also the group that they're competing with or the particular team they belong to. You know, um, because I work with athletes across a variety of different sports, um, the culture I find within sports varies absolutely enormously and sometimes um it's sometimes as strange as it sounds sometimes it's an era so it could be an era of a certain style of coach which seems to be really dominant within a particular sport over a particular period of time and then things shift and the style of coaching which seems to be within a particular sport changes if that makes sense um and and I guess over I guess I've been a, a sports dietitian long enough to have seen a couple of ch- changes, a couple of big kind of cultural changes within a variety of sports. Some of which has been really, really um, I I think moving in a really great direction where where performance kind of capacity or performance potential has been able to be maintained amongst the athletes or amongst a particular team, and yet you know health and wellbeing has really moved up the priority. Um, moved up the priority stakes. I mean, just to give you just to give you an example, I've worked with teams where where I first joined them, you know, weighing and measuring and skin folding was very much, um, or, or, or various forms of measurement, so bod pods and you know, blah blah blah, was very much part of the process. And then over the years, with with education and with work um, and with discussion and and science as well, um, that we've been able to really move away from those as being primary measures of a body and more being able to, because of course, that's an example of how we can disconnect from our bodies and our bodies become numbers, you know, a whole bunch of numbers, which makes them much more machine-like than human-like. Um, and I, and I was really noticing that mental health was becoming a real issue, um, and if I was able to connect with a kind of staff and coaches who were able to be compassionate towards this and able to see the link between mental and emotional health and then sports performance, that they were able that we were able to slowly, slowly chip away at being able to uh, replace those more number oriented outcome measures with more human centered 
athlete, athletes being much more involved in their training so that they were getting um, live feedback and they were getting much more accurate feedback um, and being able to work with their bodies rather than against their bodies. Does that kind of make sense? That makes perfect sense. It, it sounds like, I mean, what I'm hearing is that you've seen some good changes in the right direction that feel really um, hopeful for the future. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I certainly would say that that is definitely the case. And I think that the other the other dilemma that I don't know whether I'm noticing it more now or whether it's always been there, but I, but this is just kind of at the forefront of my mind right now is this, and I'm noticing it in the broader cultures, culture as well, this kind of, um, this, I wouldn't even call it a dilemma. I don't even know what I, exactly I would call it. It's like this pursuit of ideal, pursuit of an ideal body. Um, and that is usually very individual for a particular sport. And then at the same, and then at the same time, people being increasingly, um, and quite rightly, concerned about eating disorders. Um, and then there's, you know, fat phobia that I would, it would be remiss of me not to throw in there as well. There is a very, very, um, very pertinent, very, uh, very, what do you call it? It's right there in front of you. Um, uh, fear of, of, of fat in athlete circles to the point where it is spoken about as being, something to be prevented at all costs um, and, um, you know, really gets in the way of an athlete's body being able to do what it's got to do, especially, um, you know, if there's an injury around or there's a change in seasons, you know, on season to off season. Um, so I think, you know, um, holding these two spaces of there being a pursuit of, of a certain body or, or body weight or body composition. And at the same time, you know, an increasing expressed concern about eating disorders. I think for sports dietitians in particular, as well as, I mean, ultimately it's the athletes really who are holding all this stuff. But for us, this is really a big job. It's a big task for us to be able to support our athletes and the staff and each other at being able to hold the seriousness of eating disorders along with this um, the, these pursuits of bodies, which can actually really le lead to very disordered behaviors as, as we've kind of been speaking about. So yeah, it's all a bit tricky. <laughs> it is. It's so, it's so interesting to hear you talk about all of this though. I am really grateful to have you dive so deep into this stuff because I'm imagining people listening, you know, making some connections with the conversations that, that I, we have on this podcast to this particular realm of, of sport and of, of athletes. And again, like you mentioned in the beginning, there's this whole spectrum of from the amateur to the elite athlete and everywhere in between. Um, however you identify your, you are still, you, you mentioned that you still see all these issues in all these different groups of people. And so I'm imagining that, you know, some people when they hear maybe weight neutrality or they hear health at every size or they hear intuitive eating, but they are, they really value this part of their identity of athlete. I, I could see that kind of being a little bit of cognitive dissonance. Like how do I, how do I honor my body, but how do I excel at my sport and 
I love that you're talking about this really important intersection because you're right. You you there this is very complex and very messy and very difficult to navigate, but it's worth the effort because it's it can be helpful for the athlete, obviously in, in performance, but also long term with mental health and with well being overall. What else would you add to that though? Yeah, definitely. No, I think it's I think you've hit on a really great point there. And that's actually a beautiful next kind of topic for us to dive into, really. And that is the intersection of um of, you know, more non-diet principles or intuitive eating principles. And for those who are listening, you know, um non-diet approach and intuitive eating are very much the same thing. So it's um so when I talk about the non-diet approach or other people talk about intuitive eating, we're talking about just a slightly different way of approaching um, principles which sit under health at every size. So um, great question. Where do we start? All right. So the first thing is that athletes are actually in an incredible Incredible position to be able to potentially stay connected to their bodies because actually optimal performance demands this of them for them to stay connected to exactly what their body is needing from them at any one point in time. And at the same time, athletes also are often put in situations where they're being invited or demanded to push beyond what would be an average level of discomfort. So in order to push into um, uh, into a space of pain, then that, as a human, this requires a certain amount of disconnection. So although athletes have a capacity to do intuitive eating um, really incredibly, in my experience, they are often incredible at it. Um, they also are often in situations where it's very tempting to disconnect because of the culture of push, 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 or more, more, more. So um, the way I kind of present it to athletes is that um, – is first of all, I try to do a little bit of myth busting so that, for, for example, intuitive eating is not just eat whatever the hell you want, or actually in some ways it is whatever, eat the, it is eat whatever the hell you want, but not in a disengaged way, in a way which honors what my body needs in terms of performance, in terms of hydration, training, recovery. You know, what? how can I pull together the science of what will help me or what I think or what I best guess will help me, for example, recover from my training sessions and prepare me best for competition um, or a race or whatever it is, um, along with what I know about myself. You know, what do I know about my body, my digestive system, my mental health, my um, concentration span, my likes, my dislikes, um, my, my cultural background? All these things are all really part of the picture of intuitive eating. So intuitive eating really is prioritizing what we know about ourselves and using some of the science of sports nutrition to help that process along. So when neither, when neither, um, when it comes to sports performance, we're neither totally, um, totally um, just going what the body's asking for and we're, 
and neither are we ignoring what what the body is asking for. And I'll give you an example of that because some people might be like, "What? What do you, what do you mean?" Um, so I'll give you an example. So uh, with with heavy training sessions, or particularly heavy training sessions, it can really disrupt appetite. Um, and athletes often find that their appetite signals are very dampened, um, or are very heightened often. <laughs> so so immediately after training, when we've got this like optimum recovery zone, often athletes are like, Ugh, I just don't want to eat. I don't really feel like eating. And that's a time when we know from science that where recovery is optimal. And so being able to have those conversations which combine the science with an honoring of the body. So an honoring of the body when I'm not hungry but that, um, but that I know that this will serve me best in terms yes. of injury prevention. Because sometimes or, people turn intuitive eating into, well, my body told me, wasn't telling me to eat, so I just didn't eat. But, but that's not really the whole picture of it is sometimes no. you have to just use your common sense and or use, you know, good scientific knowledge to be able to navigate how to feed yourself. Yeah, spot on. Absolutely. So, and there's there's um, a lot of ways that we can use this across different communities, but none so relevant as athletes, because most athletes will be able to really beautifully tell you about appetite, about when they feel most hungry, when they feel least hungry. And I speak about I speak about this with athletes a lot, because what we want to do is we want to t- we want to use those opportunities where appetite is the best to be able to really drill down on you know what your body what your body um, not only needs but is asking for and desires as well in terms of enjoyable food and satisfying food. Um, you know, so we're not just using nutrition science there. We're also using our human, um, our humanity and our common sense and our sense of being, you know, um, being social creatures um, and and that desire and pleasure is such an important part of life, including if you're an athlete as well. You're not non-human. Yes, that's um, so important. <laughs> you are not a machine, even so, though you, yeah, like maybe – I'm wondering what you think about coaches' roles in all of this. I know, um, I know that that can be that can really change the culture of a, a team or a group of people who are training. Uh, what are your What would be your kind of superficial, not superficial, but just quick kind of advice for coaches listening? Yeah, sure. Look, I think I mean coaches. Coaches are very well aware that they their position is extremely influential in how athletes are invited to take care of themselves. Um, and what I, my experience is that when coaches are very clear about um, about what is okay and what isn't okay in terms of engaging in um, certain nutrition practices or certain hydration practices, that athletes really, really deeply pay attention to that. And sometimes even if athletes are not on a good path and, for example, are cutting out certain foods or cutting out certain food groups in the belief that this will either A, change their body shape or B, improve performance or C, all of the above, um, which is what they're kind of hoping for, um, that if coaches are very clear about who does what, as in, you know, um, you know, the sports dietitian or a nutritionist is the person to be seeing about our fueling strategies. Um, 
not um, an older athlete, for example, who might be passing on locker room chat about right. tips right. and tricks. Um, you know, if, if a coach can really set good boundaries around that and uh, and show some really awesome leadership around um, around staying connected with the body and being really interested, for example, in mindful eating practice. Um, and how that relates to an athlete and and, and performance um, and and demonstrates a willingness to be curious about the evolving and changing science and what we understand about actually what helps athletes um, perform best um, in ter- not only from a pure training perspective but then also from a whole a whole health and well-being perspective as well um, so um, so coaches who are listening um, we we sports dietitians we we really admire you and we really need your support to be able to help athletes understand how to best take care of themselves without engaging in all or nothing thinking um, or diet culture kind of crap pretty much. And also we really understand that you might have been an athlete yourself and that um, you may have some wonderful ideas about what it takes to be um, a successful athlete. So we really really rely on you to be able to hold your own experience about what it, what it takes to be a good athlete with um, with maybe the science that we've learned since you've been an athlete um, and also that there's more than one way to be an incredible athlete and um, and that we just really need your support to send those messages to to athletes so thank you for being awesome <laughs> I love it I love it so Fee, some of my some of my clients are former athletes, and I thought maybe we could take a couple minutes to talk about what that's like when when you have been an elite athlete and maybe you developed some disordered eating in the process of of your training and in, in the process of your competition, uh, and then you step away from your sport, but maybe some of that just that those eating issues or body or body image issues linger. Meanwhile, you are dealing with identity issues of I this used to be such an important part of who I am. Who am I without this sport? And then sometimes the eating stuff can get even more disordered due to sort of these identity issues. I'm wondering I'm wondering what you think about that first of all. Do you see that a lot? And also I'm wondering what would you say to that person? I guess the first thing I would say, if somebody was to say that to me, I would say, um, I would say, thank you so much for sharing your experience. And that is so valid and real. It is so real and also so common. The first thing I would want people to know is that you are not alone by any stretch. And that I hope that that would offer some um, some sense of warmth. That um, that experience is a really really common one, and also the good news is that you can actually um, relearn some of this stuff because um, I think some of the especially when people have been athletes from a very young age, which is increasingly my experience, is that, you know, the teens and the adults that I'm working with, they have actually been in some system or some program since they were very young, you know, elite sport, you know, one of my children was kind of talent ID'd and I was like, he's six, like, 
Yeah. Wow. What? Like, no, no. Like there was a part of me that was kind of chuffed. You know, I was really proud, really proud. And the other part of me was like, he is really young and no, I don't want him in this program. And, you know, being treated a certain way and being led to believe that he's something special. He is special because he's a human being. He's not special because he is really, really awesome at kicking a ball, you know. Um, and that if he's any good, he can be good in another couple of years too when he's a little bit older. That's Anyway, that's an aside. That's a parent speaking. <laughs> no, that's... Um, I've been involved. Oh, just been involved in elite sport, and I just know how it can get. So, um, anyway, so then I would probably say, you know, um, some of the work that a lot of people find that they have to do is what we call unlearning, and and that is it's like a suitcase. You know, we've got all kinds of stuff in our suitcases that are, you know, attitudes and beliefs and behaviors and memories and experiences. And they're all kind of, they're all kind of mushed together in your suitcase. It's kind of one big globby mess type thing. And often people are nodding going, yep, it feels like a big giant mess pretty much. So then then I'll often continue on and say, you know, might you be interested in, Together, we could open up the suitcase and take things out um, either one by one or we could take out the whole big globby mess and we could untangle some things. And together, we might be able to explore how, how these things have come to be how you've come to feel a certain way, believe a certain thing, how certain behaviours have become so entrenched, um, how some memories are just so strong that, um, you know, it's really been formative for, um, you know, a whole bunch of a whole bunch of beliefs and attitudes and, and, and behaviours that are still hanging around, even though that, that experience was 10, 20, 30 or more years ago now. So often I'll approach it like that is saying, you know, first of all, you're human. Second of all, it's really common. And third of all, you know, if you're interested, we we can do this work together um, to, to kind of untangle, unravel, um, you know, what, what feels like a big giant mess. You know, we can, we could together, you know, if you're interested, we can try and make some sense of this because before we can take on some new learning, sometimes we have to do some unlearning, some unraveling. Oh, yeah. So much unlearning. Mm. <laughs> yeah. So that's usually what I would, what I would, where I would start anyway. I love that. I, I wonder, just this identity piece seems to be such a common theme I see. I wonder if, current athletes, current elite athletes could could really consider who they are outside of their outside of their sport while like do that work proactively, sort of setting them up for when the inevitable happens where they have to scale back for whatever reason or they their lifestyle changes or they have an injury or whatever it might be, when that happens, kind of having a sense for who you are outside of your sport, I think can be sort of a preventative measure to be taken. What do, what do you think about that though? I completely, completely agree. So some of the factors that I observe which contribute towards the development of an athlete identity 
are are things like the personality kind of traits of an athlete, um, predisposing factors around around mental health um, and other biological kind of dispositions that are around, um, the support that an athlete has, um, and the and not only the the amount of support, but the type of support. Um, it it um, varies depending on sport, um, on the the type of sport. And what I mean by that is, you know, for example, the, um, the the visibility of your sport. So are you an elite athlete in a sport which doesn't have great visibility or has front and centre visibility in your city, in your state, in your country, in the world? I think that makes a difference too. Um, I think your role in your sport, like, um, you know, uh, whether you've been a leader or, or a captain or you have been uh, quote unquote kind of known in a particular way. So, oh yeah, that's um, say, oh, that's um, Paige. She's the flyer, for example, in cheer. You know, if you're known not only as a, a cheerleader, but you're also known as a flyer, then that kind of com- comes with it a certain expectation of ourselves and then also of others as well. So I think um, what I do notice is that um, not only is it important to do that work as an athlete, um, as an athlete, but that um, but that there's a lot of um, how do I say? So what I notice is that. Athletes Athletes who can navigate even quite sudden changes, for example, an unexpected injury, can be devastating. But um, that the being able to navigate something like an injury is going to be um, well a, a little easier if you have people around you that can remind you that um, you are valued and worthy and capable and welcomed and just innately good and acceptable as you are even if you are not doing the same as you did before or even if you are still an athlete but you're actually an injured or a rehabbing athlete um so i think that's gold right there Mm. i just that's what i just wish every athlete knew that i wish that they knew Mm -hmm. everything you just said I wish that would resonate in their soul because I think so much of my experience as an athlete, I'll just, I'll just speak personally. Like my experience was the only reason people want to be my friend or hang out with me or talk to me or know me is because of my success in sport. And then when that wasn't part of, part of my life, it was like, Whoa, like who, who am I? Am I worthy? Do I belong? Am I okay? That was such a process for me. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I just, I never had considered, I mean, my brain just didn't obviously work this way yet, but it was a long process for me to get there with what you just barely said. And I wish, wish someone had told me that as a, as a young athlete. Yeah. Oh, I think it's a really important part of, um, supporting, developing humans for a start and then remembering that athletes are athletes are not humans on the inside they're humans first so human first athlete second not Mm. athlete first human second um and i'm not going to make any particular assumptions that it's exactly the same in the states but i'm 
I'm sure it is, and elsewhere in the world, but we have a massive sporting culture here. And if you're any good at sport, then you've kind of got it made. Yeah, And I find that deeply sad, which I think is why it really, really – I think when my son – my youngest was, um, you know, talent ID'd and then asked to go in this kind of special development pathway program, I had such a strong reaction. And my husband was like, um, what's up? And I'm like, yeah. I don't know, I just, I'm feeling so oppositional about this, you know, and it's not that I don't want the best for him because I do, I really, really do. Um, and he is a little boy, you know, and yeah. I just, I don't want him swallowed up into a pathway which where, where he could easily be spat out in four or five years or maybe a little longer and he's left feeling like that was all he was, you know. Yes. Um, so I guess, I mean, as you can hear in my voice, I feel very passionate about this um, and I almost, you know, I feel very, very compassionate towards athletes and I feel it makes me feel quite ang- angry too at the systems that are in place that spit our athletes out only to leave them really struggling at the other end where you, Paige, and I, that's where we see them and we hear the awful stories. Absolutely. I mean, we hear, that, we hear their joys and successes too, but we hear mm-hmm. the awful stories too. Yeah. Yeah, and that's honestly that that pain that I that I sit and listen to is honestly why I wanted to have the conversation. I want to. I'm so glad that we were able to dive into maybe preventative measures um, athletes can take more awareness around these concepts of of these intersections of worthiness with being an athlete, with nutrition and body image. I mean, all of this stuff just totally connects into this into this space we call sports and, you know, male, female, like whatever gender plus um, whatever age plus whatever even category of, of athletics, I think we're all at risk. And I think this, I'm hoping that this can be a resource people can share among, you know, their friends or family or coaches or other athletes. I just think that this, this hopefully can be a helpful way for, to even start a dialogue around these issues um, more, more awareness and more talking and more learning and more, um, evidence-based coaching and practice and, um, engagement with, with sport, I think would make this world a little bit of a better place. (laughs) Oh, definitely. And the good news is it's not going to reduce performance. This is the thing. That is the good news. That is the good news is I think the hesitations are around, but what does this mean in terms of sporting performance? The good news is we have no evidence that it's going to have a negative effect and there's plenty of potential that it could actually elevate um, our athletes and elevate us as a community even further. So, I mean, there's that invitation out there to just kind of go, well, we've kind of got nothing to lose in so many ways. Ooh, I love that. That's such a good way to kind of close the conversation. I'm wondering if there's if there's anything you else or anything else you wanted to say or or do you feel like we covered covered a lot of things here? We did. Yeah, we did. I guess I I guess the only other thing I would say is, you know, if you're a if you're a health professional, you're you're a sports dietitian or you're a coach um working in the sporting sector, then just being aware that, you know, um, any kind of disordered eating behaviour um, can really crop up in any athlete at any time, any gender, any sport. So um, just being 
we don't we don't have to be hyper vigilant, but just being aware that this that these are very serious and um and um and and we can do a lot to really help um, the well-being of all athletes in all bodies. So don't you have a course about this? Talk, talk about talk about what you offer to help uh, professionals. I do. Thank you, Paige. That was a, that was a lovely invitation for a plug, um, and, and I appreciate that. Plug it away. Um, okay, so. Um, uh, a little, a little while ago, literally just a little while ago, I wrote and um, launched an online course for. I, I wrote it. I wrote it for dietitians, for all dietitians, not just sports dietitians, but all dietitians. Um, in saying that, um, I've had trainers, coaches, um, physical therapists, um, all different kinds, psychologists register for it and have said that they're really enjoying it. So, um, but I just wanted to um, clarify that in my mind, when I was writing it, I was writing it for um, a, the, the dietitian audience. So what it is, is a um, there's lots of different modules, which takes people through, um, it's got the title of the course is called Eating Disorders in Sport. And takes people through from the very kind of dry, fairly dull <laughs> um, topics of diagnosis. You know, Nothing's um, dry with you. <laughs> oh, well, I try to lighten it up as much as I can, but I'm like, oh, just grab a glass of wine if you have to. Whatever, get you through. <laughs> get through it. <laughs> um, you know, um, yeah, that's right. That's right. Grind. Um, so, so taking people through right from the beginning to um, to things like, um, you know, how would I know if um, somebody is engaging in these behaviours for performance reasons or for body, you know, for um, body control um, reasons, um, you know, early warning signs, um, how can I set up a prevention program in my space, um, uh, what else, counselling skills, um, uh, very practical nutrition intervention um, uh, strategies and then exercise as well. Um, so for for the nutrition and the exercise sections, um, our colleague Shane Jeffrey, who is an amazing um, eating disorder specialist, sports dietitian here in Australia, he um, I I I knew that he was going to be the best person for those topics. So I was like, Hey Shane, want to collaborate? Right? He's like, sure. You know, the discussion didn't exactly go like that, but it kind of almost did, really. Um, and so he is incredible, and he is a fountain of knowledge with um, um, with those those particular topics. Um, and yeah, all kinds of all kinds of um, all kinds of different modules. So just broken up into bite sized pieces that you can do online in your own time. There's a Facebook group as well where we are, I'm doing my first Facebook Live actually tomorrow morning, and then those will continue um, every couple of weeks where you know participants can jump on and ask questions. And um, we have some live workshops happening here in Australia, um, hosted by Shane and myself. But at this point in time, they're they're limited to three cities in Australia. So but um yeah so that's all available via themindfuldietitian.com.au so you can just have a little hunt around there take a look and that's where you can find it great um anything else you want the listeners to know about how to find you and your work um i guess i love playing around on instagram i am my my instagram handle is themindfuldietitian so i have grown to love instagram 
so, so much. I originally poo-pooed it a few years oh, ago. Oh, you did? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I was I was a late adopter, I guess, <laughs> of Instagram, but I love it. Absolutely love it. Um, I am also, yeah, the website is themindfuldietitian.com.au. On um, Twitter, I am Fiona Body Pos Oz because Body Positive Australia is my other is my other business. It's my kind of clinical private practice type of type of business. Um, and apart from that, no, that's that's probably oh, and the, and my podcast as well. Which hello, Paige, Paige, you have been my guest. Your podcast so. is phenomenal, especially <laughs> it, it's geared for dietitians, but really anyone can listen. And yeah. your discussions are so good. You do. You're such a fabulous interviewer. So I highly recommend the Mindful Dietitian podcast. Oh, thank you. That's um very generous of you. Thank you so much, Paige. I just really appreciate being here. Well, thank you for joining me. This has been a, a real pleasure, and I'm so excited to share this with my listeners. I know they'll love it. So thank you again so much. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Well, I sincerely hope you've enjoyed this conversation. If you haven't already, please go ahead and leave a review on iTunes. Thanks again so much for listening, and we'll see you soon for another episode.